Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music. Hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and radio host Emily Reese. Living in Minnesota, it's tough to throw a rock and not hit someone with Nordic roots. This episode pays tribute to the Great White North. Jill explores the ancient craft of smoked beer from Norway and Finland. And I, Emily, talk about Norwegian composer Edvard Grieg and Finnish composer Jean Sibelius. Check out patreon.com slash scoresandpours for a full playlist and a wine list, and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. Hi. Hello. How are you Am today? I on? Yeah, we're on. We're on? Okay, great. We are. I just remembered I have to. Will you hold that up? Sure. Okay. So I forgot you weren't bringing sati. I did bring sati. Oh, you did? Is this, that what that this is? This is a traditional sati. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, that, that's like Finnish legit. It's like one of the only breweries that wow. makes its way to the States. There are probably four, but you'll only find them in California and New York for sure. Wow. And then even then they'll get like a handful of cases a year. So this is the only one that I know of in the state that's brought here. Uh, from, by whom? My man Joey at Scott's Liquor has sati. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> so good. So uh, it makes sense to me that other than, where did you say, New York or L.A.? Uh, yeah, California and New York. Okay. Yeah. It makes sense that Minnesota would then be the other state to have that just because of the heritage of our state. In reality, we've got a lot of people, I mean, not a lot of people from Finland, but there's Finnish people here. Certainly Sweden and Norway, we got covered. Well, true. Um, Both of these beers, though, in order to get them to Minneapolis, like Joey or myself, anybody that works in a retail establishment Mm -hmm. would Mm -hmm. need to get on the horn with the right. importer and okay. say, can you please ship this to Minneapolis? So the only reason it's here is because someone is interested right. in it. Right. It's not shipped here by chance, as it were. Which, which <laughs> not languish. shipped here because there are it people would, from Finland who live it here? Would, it, would lang- <laughs> it would languish on shelves if it, if it were shipped here. Um, I see. But I see. Okay. Yeah, it's, it'll be a, if you've never had a smoked beer before. Nope. It'll be a really cool experience. Cool. Especially satis are just, when you're lucky, you drink them never. So <laughs> to have one is really cool. So I didn't know that that's what that was. Is, so that's what that word says? Does that word say that? No, this is, um, so you've got the name of the brewery here. Okay. And then you've got the name of the beer here. Um, it says it on the back somewhere. But sati is what the word they use for smoked be like if they want. So it's a generic term for smoked mm, beer? No, so sati is sati. <laughs> well, I was I was going to I was going to get into that a little later when we when we were kind of oh, digging we can, in. Yeah. But, um yeah, no, the difference just to so that you're prepped for it, the difference is they're both smoked. Sati's originally are they're made with some sort of juniper to filter mm-hmm. the beer but it's also ends up being part of the flavoring agent is juniper okay and then various other like barks and twigs so that depends on the brewer that depends on back in the day when it was when it was a truly a farmhouse beer yes. it was sort of whatever was around which is the main reason that I chose both of these beers because when you 
when we decided we wanted to do a Sibelius, I don't even know how this came to be either, but when we decided we were going to do a Sibelius and a Grieg and why were we going to talk about both, mm-hmm. we, it seemed like we both like Scandinavian beers slash mm-hmm. um, composers. I think the horrible winter was, a. it really <laughs> was. I think was like, hey, we live in the great white north. It's been almost unbearable this winter. Truth. So maybe that's where we need to start with (laughs) the great white north. Yes. (laughs) And why we chose Sibelius, Mm -hmm. Grieg, Mm -hmm. smoked beer, Mm -hmm. slash satis. Yes. So do you want to start with Finland or do you want to start with Norway? What's your sense? Because let's get a little music in there. I think we could, I don't know. Do Do you have a feeling my initial thought is to, I don't know. Grieg seems like he's so happy. He's so happy, and it's yeah. like it's so it's so happy. And we could, yeah, let's let's do that. Let's start. With My Greek. grandmother would be happy. So why out of all of, because we both were pretty set on Sibelius being a thing. Like we really wanted to talk about him and Sati. And mm-hmm. you were, I felt like you were pretty quick to decide on Grieg. Well, I was. <laughs> and that's because there weren't a ton of composers from those countries that had success. Okay. okay. It wasn't like Germany. Composers from those countries before, say, Grieg or... They composed in the German style. And that, it may sound to you like Grieg was doing that too. Because he's using older forms of music, uh, you know, older roadmaps to determine the form of the movements he's writing and and stuff, but he... And were they, they were particularly dances, right, the majority of yes, them? Yes. Okay. They, they were all dances. Uh, th- for this particular piece, this is a piece called From Holberg's Time. Okay. But it's also really more commonly probably called Holberg Suite. Okay. Because it's got five movements. And when he wrote it, this is this is one of those kind of quintessential pieces to, to, to show something called neoclassicism that happened in the late 19th century because... You know, we live through styles of music coming in and out of popularity all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, 90s music sounds nothing like what music sounds like now, which sounds nothing like 80s music, 70s, 60s, right? Mm-hmm. Same thing back then. Music went through changes, albeit much more slowly. Yeah. But by the time Grieg is around in the 19th century, he's in the Romantic era, so the Baroque era was two eras ago. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So there was the classical era in between that. So in the classical era, it's, you know, like every era is a reaction in opposition to the previous, right? So that's why a generation apart, those things become popular again because people are like, oh, they were doing some really cool shit in the Baroque era. And and I think I've mentioned before on on our conversations here that, a lot of Baroque music was based off of dances, like a lot of movements that you'll see written by Baroque composers like Bach or Rameau 
or Scarlatti even, you know, a lot of these are dance names like um, Gig or Courant, Air, uh, Gavat, um, Alemand, Sarabande. These are all Baroque dances. And you see these as movement titles all the time, you know. Yep. Yeah. English suite number whatever in whatever key, movement three is a gig or whatever, okay. you know. So uh, Grieg really liked that idea because what he wrote this piece for was in honor of this actually Danish composer, or not composer, uh, author, the father of uh, Danish literature, and his last name was Holberg. Well, I think he was, was he born in Bergen? Wasn't he born yeah, in Bergen Yeah, he was born with... in the same town that Grieg was born in. So like present day Norway, but the Dano, what do they call it? The Dano, the Dano-Norwegian kingdom or something that? It was like the kingdom of Denmark slash Norway or something like that, right? I'm thinking... Perhaps. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm trying to like trying to rewind back to my memory a yeah. bank of history classes and that um, I know Denmark, there was like the kingdom of Denmark mm-hmm. that Norway belonged to. Right. And then they right. separated and then they became mm-hmm. annexed like in a friendly way with Sweden. And then that, then they very amicably like decided to go their separate ways and be their own thing. But so, th- so he's from the same town. As Grieg. Holberg. Yeah, Holberg. Okay. They were both born in, in Bergen, but Holberg, you know, for all intents and purposes, grew up not in Norway. Okay. So, however, because he was such a famous author, people who lived in Bergen would celebrate his birthday. Oh. And in 1884, it was his bicentennial. Okay. So he was alive in 1684, which was the Baroque era. And so Grieg is like, what better way to pay yeah. tribute to? And that's why it's called From Holberg's Time. Okay. And so he takes these old Baroque dances and just writes them in his own way, but in a very, you know, kind of folk m- melody way. Yeah, they, there's something very, um, when you say neoclassicism and like the mm-hmm. romantic period, it makes me think of something very, it does have like this very smooth flow yeah. that's not choppy. Um, even, you know, when, when the bass gets deep and, and you've got these these high strings, they all seem to be very smooth. Is that yeah fair to say that that can be a sound attributed to the romantic era as opposed to something early Baroque? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean... That's another thing that's cool about this is that it's just a string orchestra. So there's no percussion, there's no brass instruments, there's no wind instruments, you know, there's no harp, there's no piano. How do you know about string. how many probably, strings are playing? Probably in in a group like this, this is the Australian Chamber Orchestra, which is a really really great ensemble. They put out some amazing recordings and I highly recommend checking out their stuff and this uh their conductor richard tonietti is great um a a chamber orchestra can be anywhere between nowadays you know maybe 30 to 60 okay 60 would be a little large maybe doing uh you know some of beethoven's earlier symphonies or something like that okay you know they'd have a few more players out on stage obviously but you know a string thing like this just where it's just strings i'd say probably 40, maybe 30, 40. Oh, it's beautiful. It's still a big, you know, and they can produce a really big sound. So is it, he was celebrating through this, these movements, he was celebrating 
in homage to Holberg's life, right? Or what yeah. Holberg may have liked. And so is it safe to say that we, and he was from Bergen, um, we talked about why we chose Sibelius, and of course we'll get to that later. Yep. But it, Grieg, you had mentioned there's like a very national pride. So much so, okay. yeah. And fairly so, you know, really. I mean, everything was always France, Germany, and Italy, you know, and even even someone like Antonin Dvorak from the Czech Republic, as it is known now, uh, he was Bohemian, and they wanted to force him to change his name to the German spelling and just kind of erase that. Oh. And he refused. And, you know, I mean, those nationalists really inspired, I think, obviously other composers around those areas to, to, I don't know, to just do their own thing and focus on their culture and their heritage and not try to just emulate the German style, you know? Yeah. yeah. And you, you wonder, too, if if when Norway decided to part ways with the Kingdom of Denmark and annex itself to Sweden, and that's a greatly oversimplifying it, but... Um, it was what, right around 1814. And I think what's fascinating is it usually takes, there's, there's always the prelude to that, no pun intended. There's always the prelude to that of national pride to like get everybody together to make this thing happen. But at the same time, it also, I wonder how much time it takes to permeate through the countryside, you know, these feelings of pride. And Mm -hmm. so the fact that this was, um, you know, premiered in 84, so what, roughly 60, 70 years after that annexing, it was sort of Mm -hmm. like in the middle of this time, like let's celebrate being separate from Denmark. I wonder if that had any sort of, um, I don't know, carried any weight with Greed to to elect this specific person to showcase. And almost, you wonder if it was almost like a a little bit, maybe not tongue-in-cheek, but, you know, someone that was from Bergen, but had this like Danish fame. Sort yeah. of like, but he was from Bergen, everyone. I think he got commissioned to do it. Okay. So I think that he was asked to, to write the piece and okay. paid to write it for a big bicentennial celebration. Cool. So, yeah, and it just, I, yeah, it is interesting, the kind of dynamic with Denmark there, and then to have Holberg be considered the father of Danish literature is, it's, that's, that's twisted. <laughs> <laughs> well, I loved. Well, let's. We got to try some though. We we definitely do. And then and then I'd love to go back to because I oh, loved no. I loved how, you know, again, no pun intended. I loved how the music really did just dance about. Like yeah. when I was listening to the Sarabande and it went what I think I have it written down that it was, um, but I might be wrong. Three four time and then it jumped to the ga- the gavotte and that was like two two or four four. Like mm-hmm. it really played. Yeah. It was so playful. And then it went to the air which seemed very somber and in a way that I think the Norwegian countryside is in, you know, in winter. I I do think both of the reason that I elected both of these beers as well, I know that Sibelius was so influenced by nature, but when I listen to the movements, they are really reflective of a vibrant, a very vibrant countryside. Like when you think of the land of the midnight sun, and how dark it is for so many months, and then how light it is for only a handful of months. Just all the moving parts, nature, it's just incredible. Yep. Um, and I think that these five movements really reflect that. So I chose 
a brewery that is, um, they're showcasing a smoked beer. And the reason I I chose this was, um, first and foremost, Providence, drinking something and trying to cerebrally talk about a place. I, I use, unfortunately, I use Mozart and a really great field blend of white wine called Gemisterschatz. And I'll, uh, just to, <laughs> just a, a little context. Yeah. So some friends of mine wanted to get together. This was almost a dozen years ago now. And we wanted to listen to some Mozart. And we wanted to drink some wine that was maybe reminiscent of what he was drinking, right? Okay. Which we all know Mozart drank Stiegel. <laughs> Honestly, okay. like there, you can still drink Stiegel today. But so we got a white field blend from Austria called Gemistersatz that was maybe a little bit reminiscent of what wine was like then, but probably there are many reasons why it's not. And we wanted to talk about kind of pairing wine with music and and just see where it went. Yeah. So we all sit down to, you know, we had some opera, we had some, some you know, some songs without any voice. And we were drinking this wine, and really besides the fact that they came from the same place, yeah. there was really nothing cerebral to latch onto, right? It was sort of like the wine came from the place, the composer came from the place, and there wasn't yeah. much else. Yeah. And I think this is one of the few examples you and I will ever do together where we're tasting you know, beer in this case, mm -hmm. and we're listening to a composer and there are really cerebral things to latch on to. Like, not only in this bottle that we're going to try from Norway, there's like a sense of pride in Norwegian ingredients, which is great. Mm -hmm. um, but this harkens back to historical times when most beer was smoked. So if we allow another anecdote uh, about... <laughs> You know, millennia ago, beer was made by accident. You know, someone dropped a piece of bread in maybe a source of, you know, maybe water, gruel, what have you. Mm -hmm. um, it was either a porridge or, or like wet bread. People drank that after it had fermented and maybe got a little happy. Maybe they got blitzed. Lord knows. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of fun myths surrounding the first person that got wasted on beer. <laughs> um, but and it's, it's just like... It's actually quite humorous to look it up. Just takes um, off the tunic and just streaks and across just, <laughs> the gymnasium the or whatever. Or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, but you fast forward. That takes a, when people started to want to replicate that. Mm -hmm. They needed to. They realized that okay. Well, I need to. My grains need to sprout first. They need to start to germinate so that it releases an enzyme so that fermentation can happen. And they didn't know that was happening, but they realized, like, if I just soak my bread in, in water or my oats in water, that doesn't work. It needs to, certain things need to transpire before they can actually have a fermented liquid. Okay. Well, people realize through making beer, this slow way via the sun drying method of grains, that, like, why not do it over fire? Fire was a lot easier easier way to dry grains than doing it in the sun. So when that happened, they think it was as early as the 5th century, but in its heyday where almost everything was smoked was like about the 1100s, Middle Ages. That was like, there was a point in history where beers were smoked. And so- The end. The end. Right? So yeah. when, wow. when we're tasting this, you know, when we think of, when we watch all these medieval series and they're like drinking this, you know, ale or mead yeah. or something- Usually what's in that cup, if mm -hmm. it's not wine, is probably smoked, which is fascinating. And then we fast forward through time when the, with the Industrial Revolution. Now we can do it with coal. We can do it quicker, faster, naturally. Was that soon, that 
yeah, only the, only that long ago. Yeah, about that the changed. 1700s. So we and we know oh. that so during Grieg's time, yeah, he was probably drinking some smoked beers and maybe some not smoked beers because mm-hmm. there was this who likes smoke, who doesn't. Where, what are you smoking it with became important. Like, is it birchwood? Is it alderwood? Um, Which was kind of a fascinating time for smoked beers. And Norway never really stopped making smoked beer, which Hmm. is cool. Um, Usually uh, beers like this are really, they have very active yeast. So um, when you crack them open, they tend to blow up, which is not a bad sign. People go, oh my God, I lost a finger full of beer. You're like... That was for your dead grandpa. Get over it. You know, that's a good thing. Um, but so a couple things about, well, cheers, first of all. Yeah, cheers. Yeah. Am I supposed to taste it now? Yeah, give it a taste. Okay. Interesting. So it definitely tastes smoked. For sure. And what's cool about the story wow. is this is, now we know that most artisanal producers of beer tequila, wine, you name it, aquavit, they're obviously proud of their product. They wouldn't, yeah. So that's a little bit of a dumb comparison to say Grieg was a, a, a very national-oriented composer, and yeah. so are these brewers, right? But yeah, yeah. Um, I guess I'll, I'll talk more about the provenance of this beer okay. after we listen. To, I, think, I think we need to listen to the Gavot. Okay. If you don't mind. Not at all. I feel like I've got to find my headphones. Because I do think that the the fact that it is an allegretto, right? Yeah. That it's very like happy and peppy. Yeah. Will be very reminiscent of your face when you took the first sip. Like really? you were like, "Whoa, I can't believe it." Yeah, that was so I th- crazy. I think that that'll be it'll be great. All right. Do you happen to know, is this 2-2 two, two or 4-4-10? Four, four, it's usually 2-4, a Okay, okay. Yeah. Two, or maybe four. even 2-2, okay. Two, two, okay. like halftime. I should know, but... So what makes this sound, if you're listening to this... Yeah. What makes this sound Norwegian to you? Or even or even Scandinavian, we can go there. Sections like this are um, fairly pastoral. And just, uh, I think when you hear, and I wouldn't really say this is necessarily true for someone like uh, Ravel or somebody in that era from a different country, I, I feel like, it sounds pastoral. You know, there's lots of open fifths in the bass that are kind of droning over these. You hear that? Mm-hmm. Um, you hear a lot of that. But we also hear that in the Sibelius mm-hmm. a lot, too. And we hear that in Beethoven. But it's just... I don't know. I don't know that it sounds Norwegian to me. What it sounds to me is... a. 19th century neoclassical work is what it sounds like okay. to me. 
and the fact that and the fact that Grieg did it, he created an intense amount of pride in the fact that these sounds came from a Norwegian mind. Yes. And, okay. Yep. Well, so I love that you mentioned pastoral. Yeah. Um, because actually, do you mind playing air? Yeah. Because this is a heartbreaker. It isn't is. It? reminds me when I taste this beer honestly the beer tastes like struggle to me it tastes like you know we all talk about how we I, I think a lot of people nowadays idealize the path or the past we want to like get back to farming and all these really great things but we don't realize how hard that really was for people to live a truly pastoral or a truly like a, a farmhouse mm-hmm oriented lifestyle mm-hmm. and when I taste this of course the beer is it's really fun it's delicious it's a new flavor for a lot of people sometimes when I drink it I think of like the like a tavern bursting at the seams with a bunch a bunch of people just like merrily yeah. drinking in the middle ages something yeah. like this but I yeah. usually think of like struggle like it how beers were like this out of necessity not because everybody loved smoked flavor you know right um, and that necessity ends up being like if you taste your palate still kind of tastes like smoke and and bitterness yes. and it just really hard times live through a lot of generations mm-hmm. out of all all five movements the air reminds me the most about this beer but um a really cool thing if you if you because when i taste this it's delicious it really is. I'm I'm blown away that I like this. So this is something that I think a lot of um, I've spoke to a few Norwegian acquaintances um, of mine and asked them, you know, do you drink smoked beers? Do you like smoked beers? Are you proud of smoked beers? Because you know, a lot of Norwegians drinking is expensive, so a lot of Norwegians will drink at home before they go out. And they'll, you know, drink vodka or aquavit or snaps, as they're known. Um, and they'll drink Eurolager because it's a lot cheaper than stuff like this. But people that um, aren't, aren't drinking to, like, necessarily get buzzed and they, they spend, they drink less but drink better, they're extremely proud of their smoked beer heritage and um, that it's never really stopped. It was the first artisanal, like, in terms of a movement, it's, I'm pretty confident in saying that Norwegians and Scandinavians in general, there's, of course, there are great IPAs coming out and stouts coming out of the area. But um, the smoked beers, I think, is what caught a lot of people's attention. There, There is a place that's been continually making smoked beers in Germany since the 15th century or 16th, 16th wow. century or something. But other than them, Scandinavia is, is known for it. And this, so this specific producer has a super cool story. So there's, um, there's an island called... Um, Taudra, that is very close to, I think it's just a little bit north of Trudheim. Okay. And 
these this couple, and I don't know if they're together or not, but I guess it doesn't really matter. They left this island close to the, the small town of Frost to go explore the world and do other things. And they ended up coming back and realizing they wanted to farm mm. on this island. Mm-hmm. So they planted a lot of heirloom agricultural products, including barley. Um, it's called domen, is the strand of bar- barley, okay. the heirloom strand of barley. And then once the barley was grown and it tasted delicious, they sold it to, they're called the Norsk Handwerksmalt, which is like the nice. local maltery. Okay. Um, and the, <laughs> the local maltery, they obviously would like, you know, they're going to do what people want them to do with the malt. Yeah. Well, this specific producer, um, Klostergarden Alstedberger, required mostly smoked malts, of which they purchased, um, and then... Most everything else is coming from Norway in the beer, which is really cool. Okay. Um, it's smoked with Norwegian alderwood. So you have this product coming super full circle. It's the barley. Most of the barley is grown on the island. The beer is made on the It's malted on the island. And then it's shipped away from the island, probably consumed there as well. But extremely proud of what their island is capable of and saying, you know what? We don't care if it's $10 a bottle. Right. It's delicious. Yes. Drink one, don't drink six. And um, (laughs) I just think it's a joy to to drink something that tastes like the past. Sure. Yeah. No, cheers on that. It's really delicious. I'm glad you like it. Is there anything you don't like about it? Because sometimes smoked beers, people think they're really fun. But, you know, you look at this and this is, what, um, 6.5% alcohol, but this is a about 16.9 ounce bottle. I mean, if you were to be served a pint of this, is that too much smoke or would that be... I'd just drink it real slow. Like I'd almost drink like a really heavy dark beer, not a light dark beer, right? Gotcha, gotcha. So uh, I think the only thing I don't like... Well, there are two things. One is about this beer and one is about beer. Beer fills me up and I don't like that. Like I just don't... Like I feel like I just... I already feel like I you know, ate just like ate. a big bread roll or something. Which is, know? which is, I think, uh, not to interrupt. No, but please. But purposefully to interrupt. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I, but I, what I love about it is, like, there was a time when that's what beer was meant to do, right? Like, it yeah. gave us calories, it was safer than water, filled us up. True. When we didn't yeah. have, and so whenever I'm drinking beer, like, mm-hmm. of course I... I want to, usually, I love when I'm able to have more than one, but when it fills me up, yeah, because I too am annoyed by the fact that I get full when I'm yeah. drinking beer, yeah. Um, I, I, I think to myself, like, wow, this is why, like, every time I think that, I'm like, wow, but this is why people drank beer, was mm-hmm. to, like, feel right. nourished by yeah. beer, which is, like, then I kind of do, like, a little fist pump. I'm like, <laughs> yes, living back in the day. Yeah. Maybe less dinner. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a strange thing, and it, you know, kind of pretty much every time I take a drink of beer, any beer, I just instantly remember beer, you know, just beer gut, hungover beer gut. <laughs> yeah, so it's just weird. Like, I can feel that right now, even though I don't really have it. You know what I mean? It's like a phantom beer gut. Yeah. You won't thing. have it, though, because there's well, nothing Well, I'm not going to drink 12 of them, for one thing. Well, yeah, and there's nothing shitty in there. It's just like true, you know, just like good yeah. quality malts. So it's smoked with the alderwood. You said, "Yep." Any kind of piney thing in there? Nope. Junipery kind of nothing. Nope. So okay. um, 
that's not to say that that wasn't done in Norway, but when we taste the next beer that mm-hmm. is very specifically done with juniper okay. and oh, like so excited. flavoring agents, yeah. it's sort of like this um, squared. Okay. Like it's, okay. It's quite magnified on a lot of different levels, nice. alcohol, flavor, but um, I also think, well, let me ask you, do you think there are times when Grieg is appropriate? Like, when do you want to listen to Grieg? Oh, when my do you, God. When do you yes. recommend that people listen to Grieg? You know, if someone were going to ask, hey, you know. Yeah, look, Grieg writes some of the most lovely. First of all, he wrote a ton of piano music, and that's how I, I think he was initially kind of became a well-known composer is he wrote a lot of piano music for people to play. You know, he wasn't writing it for to make it hard necessarily. I mean, he definitely did that too, don't get me wrong. But, okay. I mean, his piano concerto is amazing. Have you heard it? Can we hear just a half a Please, second? Please, I would love that, yes. I guarantee yes, you'll know do it. it. I guarantee you'll know. All of you will know this. I was talking about, you know, what kind of Grieg and what... Like, when when is Grieg appropriate? Yeah, I think morning times. I really do love listening. He, he's, you know, it again, he's written, as we've already heard, somber music. There's sad Grieg. There's angry Grieg. You know? Angry. There's... <laughs> <laughs> but, generally speaking, there's a kind-heartedness to his music... And a, a, a joyousness okay. that I just really love. I love. You know, I mean, people know Grieg. They know Morning from Pierre Gint. You know, they know, mm-hmm. they know that stuff. Are we able to listen to the regadon? Does time yes. permit for a little allegro con brillo? Yes. Yes. A little this happiness, happiness with brilliance. Who doesn't love that? Right? And Get is you this with your Latin or Italian or whatever? A little bit of <laughs> a little bit of both. <laughs> Scary. This was you tasting. Yeah. It wasn't this it one? wasn't the gavot, it was the rigodon. This one tasting it for the first time. Yep. I'll have another drink. So good. It's so good. So good. So we should actually it'd be a great to like combine and can join our audience to ask them to report back after you put the fifth movement on in the shower 
<laughs> tell us that your day is not going to, you're not going to kick the day's ass. Right. Like, come on. I know, come man. On. It's true. This is great. One of my favorite things to do when I clean house is to put on a bunch of Strauss waltzes. <laughs> Seriously. Because those waltzes are brilliant. Those Strauss brothers, man, they were with it. <laughs> and it's so delightful to just like clean house to that. And Grieg too, you know what I mean? Like it's just, the, the, the nice thing is that for the Grieg, since they were dances, you know, he's imagining people dancing to them. The air has some really quiet spots, right? That mm-hmm. third movement. But generally speaking, this is kind of what I consider like easy classical music to listen to in the car. Yeah. Because the the softs don't get too incredibly soft. And you know, the dyna- it's not all over the pla- all over the place and in a good way. You d- am I making sense with you that? You are cuz when yeah. when Mahler comes on, I tend to haunt more, you know? I just <laughs> there's I'm I'm not a road ragey person, but when Mahler's on, I can be actually. Yeah. There is a little bit of rage. Yeah. Um so let me ask you this. Sure. Um do you, did you notice that this is it's cold, but when yeah. I brought the beers over to our our nook here, yeah. I didn't stick them in the refrigerator immediately, yep. and I didn't take them out before the show. Do you notice that it's it's cool, but yeah. it's not cold? Oh, yeah. I so, noticed. All right. So smoked beers are never good. Like cold, best beers in the world, in my opinion, like the best wines in the world, some of them you want them cold, but not freezer, you know, virgin. Yeah. Unfri- and also cellar temperature. Like these, think of back in the day when they didn't have refrigeration. Mm-hmm. These were probably down in a cellar, and that cellar was probably, I don't know, between 40 and 55 degrees. And this is like the perfect temperature because if this were too cold, it would be smoke and bitterness, and it's already low in carbonation. So it right. wouldn't be refreshing. It would just be like, it would seem more smoky almost, like the okay. malts wouldn't come out. Okay. Um, and huh. like the actual, not the smoke portion, but like the malt profile. Yeah. Um, the actual flavor of barley and that being at cellar temperature allows for that. So just if you're deciding to go get yourself some Grieg and some smoke beer. Yeah. You'd want to let it sit out. I would, yeah. Yeah. I'd- or if it were on the shelf, not refrigerated at the shop... Would you want to cool it up a little bit? I would. And then let it settle back down a bit? Most definitely. If this were, you know, a 70-degree bottle, it would be fine to taste it, but I wouldn't want to drink it. Okay. So I'd probably put it in my fridge for like a half hour. Okay. And then it would be perfect, and I'd take it out and drink it. And then maybe it'd get a little too warm after, you know, my 45 minutes because I drink smoked beer really slow. I'd put it back in the fridge, put it out on our back steps in Minneapolis here right now. (laughs) It's cold. Um, But it loves like a cellar temperature. That's great. So how, when I was thinking about this at home, I was like, transition. Oh. Grieg to Sibelius. Like Mm -hmm. how, besides... Besides the fact that we need to hop over Sweden, right? Like, how, how do we even? How do we even go? And we're there? not going to ignore Sweden. We're coming back. I mean, we are today. Oh yes, we, we are, are coming today, back. But we're definitely coming back because one of my uh, champions is a Swedish composer who doesn't, in my opinion, get nearly enough attention. So we'll come. We'll come back to Sweden one of these days. But that's I, a little teaser. I ooh okay. I yeah. won't ask who then. I nope. can't wait. I think you told me in you an know, email. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. There's, there's a. It's written down somewhere. Documentation. But, yeah. Well. Yeah, but so, I know. I say we just make the leap because um, 
It turns out they make smoked beer in Finland as well. But yeah, I thought that Sati and Sibelius are literally synonymous. They're really cerebral. They're really chunky. They're not for everyone um, in so many ways that Origins just like the tip of the flipping iceberg. Like I was so excited. I like took this out of my fridge. I literally grabbed it by the bottle cap and I was like, <laughs> so excited for today. <laughs> so um, what do you got for me in the Sibelius department? Well, I I think Sibelius is quite an approachable composer personally. I think maybe uh, l- You're length. a classical nerd though. Yeah, you're In right. all the right ways. You're right. You're right. So some people would say, um, I would say, gosh, wines with a ton of volatile acidity that aren't filtered, that are all these funky things like the white mm-hmm. label are yep. totally approachable. And someone would say, Jill, because <laughs> you pretty much exclusively drink natural wine. That's why. Uh, okay. okay. So, all right. Fair enough. But fair go enough. ahead. But go ahead. Fair, no, that's, that's a really good point. Um, Sibelius was a little bit younger than Grieg. Uh, Grieg actually died right around the time... Uh, that Sibelius premiered his third symphony. And I really wanted to talk about that third symphony today because I love it, for one thing. Uh, I I read all these kind of conflicting critical reviews of it. You know, some some people didn't like it. Some people really did like it. And I I think... um, Sources that where you see it say that it was critically panned, I think that's just an overstatement. Okay. To be honest, because um, it's, it's lovely and um, Jesus, I just can't imagine. Well, and was it that. wasn't it for its time? I feel like whenever I listen to Sibelius, and I listen to anybody else from that same time period, and you know, back to back, they're just so radically like Sibelius. I feel like was just in his own playing field. Is that safe to say? I mean, his music is I think so extremely unique. Yeah, his symphonies are really really brilliant he wrote seven of them and i think maybe an eighth is in parts or something like that but unfinished perhaps but but maybe he burned all of the music is that a thing or is that not a I true don't know story if he did that i honestly don't know yeah there's something i read a few different articles that are um definitely not uh haven't been validated of course that that's what he was burning but supposedly okay. after he was doing all this burning, he became a little bit more serene in his temperament because he mm. was like a drinker. He was, a, he was a heavy drinker. He had some issues with that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, this third symphony is just beautifully constructed and, you know, is oftentimes his style is compared to Beethoven, even though there was, you know, a solid century in between them. Um Although Beethoven's Third Symphony happened right around 1804, I think, and so literally almost 100 years later then Sibelius writes his Third Symphony and it premieres in 1907. But it's just, it's so well put together and he does a couple of really cool tricks, as it were, where he'll just kind of sneak in with a theme and all of a sudden, all of a sudden you're in this new, like, area of the symphony and it, he'll just kind of sneak these things in. And well, and wasn't, was that what he was known for, right? He was like, he would take parts and like, I, of course, a lot of composers did this, but he'd build on them, yeah. right? In ways that other composers with didn't do it with that magnitude. Yeah, sort of. just okay. a, a lot of really brilliant thematic 
just either, you know, development, you know, taking a theme and developing it or, you know, taking a rhythm, like how the very, the opening of the third symphony starts, da, 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 and that little rhythm is all through that movement and, and comes back in the third movement. And like the first movement goes into this chorale towards the end where it kind of foreshadows this giant, beautiful chorale in the last movement. Now there's only three movements in this symphony. So, but that third movement can present itself as like a scherzo in a finale kind of thing as it, it can sound like two movements that, that segue into each other. Okay. Like we heard in the Beethoven. So it can kind of be that you can think of it that way, but that's not how he wrote it. You know, he wrote it as the third movement is just one, one thing with a beginning part. And then this, glorious chorale at the end in a chorale chorales sound like chorales because they sound like church hymns in a lot of ways all four parts will pretty much move together okay in a very what's called homophonic way where you know everybody's moving together there might be some passing tones in huh, between okay. but like um so yeah i i kind of spewed out a lot of stuff there. Well, uh, we should listen to one. Yeah. Can sure. we, uh, can, are we going to start at the beginning? Well, I would love to. I mean, I'd love to hear the whole thing, but I, I know we don't have And it's quite a bit luxury. longer, right? When I, when I was listening to this. It's um, a half hour. Okay. For three movements. Yeah. The fir- and I, you know, I, that's one thing I really like about this symphony too, is I think it's really well balanced. I, I like balance in my symphonies. And so <laughs> I like that it's basically like 10 minute movement, 10 minute movement, eight minute movement. So yeah, this one starts very quiet, and I do want to say a few words about this recording because this is these are our hometown heroes. This is the Minnesota Orchestra, and the conductor is Osmo Venska, who is from Finland, and they did the Sibelius Symphony Cycle over the last several years. And one of the things that Osmo is just really known for, is other than being a total genius, is... Uh, getting a full symphony orchestra to play so soft and so precisely. Like, they just, they have such chops, this orchestra. Wow. It's amazing. So this starts super quiet.
So this is the secondary theme right here. And we're in B minor, which is a far, far cry from C major. When I when I listen to this, yeah. Every time I listen to this, I think of a. a it's typical, but like a movie plot, where you know it starts out a certain way, whether it's a tragedy or a comedy, yeah. and then it gets into the seriousness of the plot, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden this climax. Like I love how it very much is reminiscent of like modern day f- film, I guess. Yeah. Ahead of his time. Yeah. Just all this energy, there's so much energy in this. Just constant. When maybe you have to have an imaginative mind to start, I mean, if you didn't decide to take an evening and read about Sibelius, maybe you'd have to have an imaginative mind to try to go to the connection to nature Mm. but I feel like it's not that it's not a far cry I mean how dynamic is nature and death and life and major and minor and coarse and smooth um, like just that right there that could have been so many things right in nature and yeah it's so playful too Yeah, there's just some really great horn lines in this symphony. There's great woodwind stuff with the clarinets and the flutes. There's some great bassoon. Here's a bassoon solo right now. It's awesome. Um, yeah, it's like everybody gets a little turn. <laughs> so on that, Jesus. <laughs> well, he's, he's done now. It's the clarinet's turn. She's getting anxious to open some stuff. Well, let's open it crying out loud one thing I did want to mention because I feel like it really it has to do with the linkage of the two is um, like almost every time I listen to Sibelius I find that I'm I do and obviously everybody doesn't listen to classical music like this but I do look up a little information of like (laughs) what I'm going to get myself into unless I'm super familiar with something yeah Um, and how many of his works are um, his kind of audible depiction of the Kalevala, right? Um, this mm-hmm. ancient, um, at one point it was a lot of, it's folklore, of course, a very important saga in Finnish history, but it's also, there was a point where a lot of it they think was verbal, very much like the Elder Edda in Iceland and the Eddas. Um, and in the Kalevala, there's actually 400-ish lines that are dedicated to beer, the art of brewing, the art of the brew, the brew maker, I think almost quoting it. Wow. Um, and I found that interesting that I'm sure Sibelius was very inspired by maybe beer, maybe not beer, but the Kalevala and how those two link up. Um, and then, you know, the Kalevala is ancient. And mm-hmm. so to think of the fact that there are parallels there if through history um, I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah. I'm just going to open this. Open I'm it. Well, all too excited. <laughs> so sati is a beer um, that is, well, let's get some in our glass before. All right. 
may erupt again. We'll see. I know. What's going to happen if it does? It doesn't matter. It's going to go in my mouth. All right. Okay. So sati's usually have less, if they're done correctly, okay. they usually have a little less effervescence. Then you'll notice um, how hard I'm having to pour for it to get a little bit of head on the top. Yeah. And then watch how it's it's it may die quite quickly. Um, okay. And that's normal for a sati. So... This is a much darker color. It's a much darker color. It's higher in alcohol by three plus percent. So we're at sitting pretty right at nine percent. Um, and Asati is a, an, a very old style. I hesitate to say ancient. I think I already did say ancient, but they know that Sati like beers were being made, especially in Finland, but all over Scandinavia in like the 1300s. Damn. Or or further back. Okay. Um, they actually, no, I, I, I don't lie, but I correct myself <laughs> quickly. Um, there was, there have been records of various ships that have sunk in Viking ships. Okay. That on these vessels, the easiest way to date them is by the woodwork that's done. And so um, barrels that they think date to about the ninth century when they've scraped, because obviously things on the bottom of the ocean are quite well preserved. When they do scraping and tests, it's like beer that was maybe a little bit like a sati. And so we, we think that 1300s, no question. But we, could we go all the way back to the 8th, ninth century? We probably could, okay. which is fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, sati nowadays, basically, um, back in the day, it was a farmhouse ale. Okay. It was made with wild yeasts in like an open wooden container, basically. So they would have an element of sour sourness to it because they didn't know about yeast back in the day. Okay. Usually they would incorporate in order to get yeast, they would be using a hunk of bread, a hunk of rye bread. It would be the, the start of trying to create these grains and making them into beer. Barley, oats, what was what gave the quintessential sati its definition back in the day, or it wasn't even its definition. Everybody had what was around. And in great quantities in Finland, there was a lot of juniper. So people would, sometimes they would put it in the beer to help. They didn't have a lot of hops until about the 14th century or so. So for, you know, 500... 300, 200 years, depending on sources we're consulting, they would filter the beer th either through juniper twigs and branches and other branches because there were a lot of antioxidants like hops in those sources, or they would steep them for a little more flavor. I think beer back in that day smoked, yes, but it probably had a lot of defects, you know, so it was a good way to make something taste good. Um, when they filtered it, what were they filtering out? Because it seems like if you're pouring beer over a bunch of twigs, not a lot is going to filter out. Well, you, yeah, good question. <laughs> so, you know, you'd have all of your leaves, like your dead yeast cells, but you'd have like these chunks of bread that have probably dissolved oh, and I stuff. See. Okay. And they would, they would make it such that they would layer it pretty heavily. So, you know, if you think of having a really thick pad of kindling when you make a fire mm -hmm. and you make that, you know, as high as you need to make it to pour something over and have it be definitely not clear. It's definitely not going to be like our beer, but, um, or, or beers we're drinking in general today, but mm -hmm. it would be cloudy, but okay. it would be free of like a lot of particulates, you know, okay, bigger sure. particulates for sure. sure. Okay. Um, so that's it. Sometimes they would use yarrow. Sometimes they would use caraway depending on what was growing. But what I love about the beer is it's 
people have extreme pride in sati. There's like there are festivals, there are guilds centered around sati, and it really to me mimicked this pride that people had and have mm-hmm. with Sibelius. The influence of nature, nature created this beer, N- not only the yeast, but just what was around for people that ended up becoming mm-hmm. something that mm-hmm. is like a, a a national thing. So yeah, let's taste let's try it. it. Cheers. Stop stop talking, Jill. Start <laughs> tasting. So you notice the malt profile, that smoke? Yeah. Is maybe 25% of what the last beer was. It's there, mm-hmm. but it's really faint. Yes. Um, and that's maybe not what 13th century sati's were like, but it's Pretty akin to what more modern sati's should have a little smoked element. Okay. But it shouldn't overtake mm-hmm. the attempt to taste the little bit of juniper that's there. Mm-hmm. I have, we have to taste side by side now. Now I have to go get another glass. Oh, oh. shit. Yeah. Don't you think? Well, I don't I need mean, to, you but you should, yeah. you should go yeah. do it. You should yeah. go do it. <laughs> God, that's good. Oh. Mm. So nowadays you'll... they. The guild has, and this is something I disagree with the guild. It is my goal to go and take part in the Sati festivals that happen. Okay. And I want to get a meeting with the guild and ask them, why the hell can it not be slightly tart? Like, they don't want tartness in a Sati nowadays. Okay. And I get why, because tartness could be a defect. But within boundaries of controlling your ferment, like, that could harken back to old flavors of not knowing, you know, what was going to happen with your beer. So I actually disagree with the Guild. I think that a little tartness might be kind of fun. But one thing you'll notice right away is that the sati next to the smoked beer, the sati is a bit sweeter malt. That's the higher alcohol. Okay. Like there's more malt in it. Therefore, there's more available sugar source for yeast to feed. Hence, it's higher alcohol. And a little bit, a little bit sweeter. And I can't get over the smell of this sati. And if you give it a little swish in your mouth, like it brings about that notion of juniper. Mm-hmm. It tastes very different than it smells to me. Mm-hmm. You know, in what way? I, I can't. I can't. I couldn't even start. I've been Go trying there. this whole time. I've been trying to think. This beer is. It's unpasteurized. Um, it is unfiltered, as is the other beer which is brilliant. It means that they've never been heated up to a certain temperature to kill microbes that would be, you know, they don't want it to re-ferment in the bottle, but at the same time you're killing that flavor. So they've opted to stay um, unpasteurized, which is cool. Okay. Wow. Side by side, I like the sati better. Do you? Isn't that weird? It's not weird because usually um, in general in like a wine tasting and a beer tasting, the reason why triple IPAs and stouts and all that stuff win competitions is because they're sweeter. They have more, and as humans, we're trained for a fast. So we want inherently calories, even though nobody thinks they want calories and nobody wants to admit they like sweet. But that's that's the reason why you may like the sati better. Because I really thoroughly enjoy the the Norwegian beer. I can't recall the name of it, but... The Alastad Burger. Alastad Burger. Okay. Yeah. No, I I think it's delicious, but I do like... Because the thing is, the sati, the smell is not pleasing to me. 
In what what way? What is it smells like three day old coffee in a way? Like mm, okay. Like, you know, you left your coffee out and forgot about it and then To me it kind of smells like a tea bag with brown sugar Maybe on it. that's it. Maybe that's what I'm thinking. Like a black tea bag with brown sugar. Yeah, but then you taste it and it's it's really um it's very full profile. You know what I'm saying? Maybe. And it there's an there's a a side note of yeah. like chamomile or there's something herbaceous that I really like um mm-hmm. on the on the palate and the nose, but the ginger or excuse me, the juniper really comes through on the finish, which I which I adore. Um, and to give a shout out to this brewery, thanks for doing what you're doing because not a lot of people are making sautés. Um, so, pardon me, I'm going to butcher it. My finish is obviously terrible. But thanks to Vaca Suomen Panino, Panimo, Osakeito, you're making good stuff. So keep it up. Nice. Oh, cheers. Cheers to them. Cheers to that. It's delicious. When we were meeting up to talk about what you know, how this was going to this particular show was going to unfold. You know, you and I haven't gone down the beer road really before as, you know, in the brief time that I've been blessed to know you. Thank you. Back at you. <laughs> and uh, so we were just kind of like talking, well, what do you like in beer? Well, I'm kind of weird about my beer. Is that what I said? And uh, the reason I felt like I was weird about it is because everybody wants their stupid IPA. Everybody wants an IPA. IPA is everywhere. It's impossible to not, you know, it's like hard to find stuff I really like because of that sometimes. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's kind of whatever, but I don't know. It, I just, it's just nice to taste something weird that I really like. <laughs> well, in, in, the, in the defense of craft beer right now, there's a lot of bad craft beer, just like mm-hmm. there's a lot of bad top 40 music or symphonies. You know, there's probably, wine. you know, a lot of bad wine. There's a lot of, and so... Having to, that's what, like my job, right? Like sift through, and mm-hmm. I'm not saying the bad stuff, like what I don't like. It's like, it's, yeah. it's genuinely bad. There's a local brewer um, that I, I won't name, but, you know, everybody loves them. They're, they're, doing, they're doing decent work. But when you taste the beer, it's, it's not that I don't like it. It's mm-hmm. like it is unbalanced. There's just flaws all over the place. You know, and you wonder how people can buy it, yet at the same time, there's got to be enough beer for everyone. Yep. At least they're doing efforts to make something better than Budweiser, you know? So yeah. in that, we got to give them props for that. Yeah. Um, and IPAs are a great way to get people that might not like beer over from wine or yeah. sour beers. Right now, sour beers are like the thing. Kettle sour, quick to market, throw in some lactobacillus and call it a day. <laughs> and, you know, in two weeks you have a beer, great. You know, are they mesmerizing and will they keep you up at night? They won't. But will they maybe turn people from wine onto beer that say, I don't like beer? Maybe, which could be a good thing. So Corona did that for me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Put a lime in it? Fantastic. I hope I thought you were gonna say, as did the Cancun sun or something. Oh, no, and like, no, no, no. Have a debaucherous story. Break. But yeah, no. Yes. Um, do you mind if we listen to cause what reminded me of this beer was the yeah. nocturne? The second, yeah, the yeah, second yeah. movement. Um, I thought. I guess going into talking about six four time and sati, I won't mm-hmm. do that yet. Maybe you should listen <laughs> to it first. But no, I love this uh, second movement so much, and there's all this kind of fun debate online about well, not online, but just in history about you know what the form is of this because 
it kind of presents itself like it's a rondo, which we can get into that um, another time, but it's not really a rondo. Uh, but there's all this repetition of this opening statement, you know, just this lovely, yeah, let's listen to this. This is great. And he does, again, this is, he writes some great bass lines, this guy. And I love the bass line in really all this symphony. There's some great stuff in the first moment. But the way the bass line gets to do the um, two against three is wonderful. Did you catch that on your listen through? Let's listen again. I'm yeah. sure I heard it. Did yeah, I yeah, catch yeah. it? I'm not so sure. I really thought hard about like sending you a list of things to listen for, but I didn't want you know, it's kind of like when you tell someone what to taste for. Like, sometimes you don't want to do that, right? Exactly. You just want someone to experience it. So the flutes, this is the first time you're going to hear this melody. They kind of hint at it, you know. Think of like a Finnish winter, oh yeah, in a frozen lake. Yep. But the sun is shining. Yeah. On a, like on a for about a, two hours. Yeah, right. <laughs> but on a really warm winter day, and being able to like see your breath, but you ha- you feel the heat of the of the sun. Yes. See, even this this makes me want to dance. This would be just a lovely dance. What is it called when it's not a like so if it's a triplet, you know, what is it called when it's a when it's two? That's a duple. Duple. Yeah. So what if we drink Doppelbox right. and we listen to duples? <laughs> like it's just gonna be about the double effect. <laughs> and how and then it's, we could drink yeah. wines aged in double stuck. Double what is that? Uh, double barrel so instead of it being 1500 no instead of it being it depends on the region but instead of being 1200 which is a regular barrel it's 2400 or 1000 it's 2000 wow makes a huge difference so this is kind of the first statement of this particular theme by the strings themselves and in in that way like each time he brings this theme back it's different but it's not a theme in variations either you know that's not what this movement is as you're listening to this yeah we're cheating too we're looking at the score which is if you can read music a really fun thing to do by the way it's like super satisfying right now do you mind when you taste that with this right now yes um do you get the 
like the finish on it tastes like wet bread. Like yeah. I love that about it, that it's like very akin to like bread soaked yeah. in water with some juniper and with, you know, a bonfire in the distance. Like mm-hmm. it's so lovely. It is. So my favorite part is coming up again because he does this duple thing over and over again as well. But yeah, there's a really terrific website. I'm so grateful for it um, called IMSLP. Something about International Music Library Score Project or something, and if it's in the public domain, it's up, and wow. you can see original manuscripts, you know, facsimiles of original manuscripts and all kinds of stuff. It's it's an amazing, amazing website. They're like the Wikipedia of music scores, really, wow, without awesome. without the information and stuff, but um, just so such a valuable resource over just the creation of the internet, really. I love it. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. No, this, um, yeah, this sati is really, truly an experience. So, the silence of Jarvinpa, you know, that yeah, this incredible composer, happy yet troubled person during, depending on what time of his life we're talking about. Are you talking about when he stopped writing? First, the rest of his life. For the rest of his life. Almost, you know, for yeah, what like we have. Yeah, 30 years or something. Yeah, I think plus. Mm-hmm. Um, I wondered what, in in you living in the classical jazz realm, like, do people ever talk about what could have been or, you know, are missing, missing pieces or not really? Do people just kind of let that lie? You know, I honestly don't know too much about it. I know that he stopped, just completely stopped composing I think generally speaking nobody really knows why that happened I, I don't know because he was so successful you know maybe for all I know he just was like wow I'm I'm set now I mean I think he had some money issues though mm-hmm. too so who knows I don't know I really I really don't know I just it's it is fascinating because he lived a fairly long life he lived from 1865 to 1957. That's a long time. Yeah. And then to say the last 30 years, you're not going to write anything. Crazy. You maybe he wrote shit and burned it. I don't know. Yeah, I think I think he did. I think he burnt because um, his his wife has been recorded on multiple multiple different sources saying, like, I walked into the living room and saw what I saw and had to not, not quote, but yeah. I needed to walk out because I couldn't watch that happen. Yeah. And you wonder if with his troubles with his wife and family mm-hmm. and money, if that's what he needed to do and to alcohol. like, yeah, yeah, to like walk away and be a family man and be mm-hmm. somewhat sober, et cetera, and enjoy nature the way he did. You wonder if he needed to walk away from composing. It was either composing yeah, because obviously when people are this brilliant, it's usually the word priority doesn't even begin to encompass what it is. Yeah. Um, you wonder in order to save marriage, et cetera, if he needed to just mm-hmm. go away from that world after the Seventh Symphony. Honestly, though, you and I am sure, I'm, I assume that you have, I certainly have known artists 
uh, you know, pe- whether they're a really good instrumentalist or they're a really good fill in the blank and they just reach a point where they break up with it mm-hmm. and can't, you know, I definitely did that with the trumpet and I'm not nearly as talented as, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like Sibelius was as a composer, but, you know, I think, I think sometimes art brings pain to the creator of the art too. And sometimes, you know, even though he's writes this beautiful, like lovely music, you know, it's also really heartbreaking at times, but you know, maybe that just wore him down too. And he's just like, I don't, I just can't anymore. Well, in the, obviously in the world of composition, Mm -hmm. there's the business of composition and you wonder, you know, I, I can attest to the fact that the the business of wine is Mm -hmm. like, sometimes gets the best of you. And sometimes the reason that you want to just cash it all in isn't because of the wine itself. It's or like the abuse of wine. It's like all the BS surrounding Mm -hmm. it becomes way more important than not for me, but it has at times, you know, infringed slightly on, you know, the enjoyment of it or just kind of the getting it to the right place. Right. It becomes, so you wonder if, if if that had anything to do with it. What I, sure. The reason why I bring that up is because Sati, for the longest time, had its own, like, silence of Juventa. Really? Yeah, there was a time where um, I was working in beer in Chicago in the early 2000s and kind of up through 2011 or so. And, yeah, you might see a Sati, like, on a shelf from 10 years ago, or you'd have one shop that knew to get it in, but even then, it wasn't really a thing. Like, nobody cared enough to... There weren't a lot of Chicago brewers making sati-style beers. Or, like, okay. they weren't excited to go seek them out. Mm-hmm. This was also in sort of the birth of, like, IPAs starting to take over the scene. Yeah. So, obviously, they're not going to compete. $11 finished sati isn't going to compete with a, you know, mass-produced yep. whatever. Right. IPA. Right. But, you know, it had its own silent period where it really was in the hands of a just a very small amount of people in Finland in the in the best beer bars in the country or in the best beer bars in maybe London something like that that they'd mm-hmm. have on occasion one sati and even then I'm being generous, you know, yep. um, just to cover my cover my bases. I want that one <laughs> shop from Chicago being like, we always had a sati jail bot. <laughs> exactly. um, okay. Yeah. Uh, but you know, so I, I don't really know how to speak to Sibelius and like, was was there a resurgence of his work or after he passed away or has he just kind of always been famous from his lifetime? But that yeah. respite that he had, I just found it a, a slightly fascinating that there was this time period also where Sati was kind of yeah. in silence and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a few people were just doing it. Yeah. I think because of the time where Sibelius lived, you know, since he lived into the 50s, you know, I mean, my parents were born by then, mm-hmm. long born by then. And if they had been classical music aficionados in their tween years, they would have known yeah. Sibelius died. You know what I mean? So, I mean, it's, uh, it's. Um, I think maybe in the last, I really don't find that there really would have been much of a lull 
in hearing a Sibelius tune okay. at an orchestra concert. You know, because on top of the symphonies, I mean, he wrote a lot of orchestral music. He wrote a lot of songs and things too, but he wrote a lot of tone poems and just super short, we're not going off on a tone poem tangent here, but basically a tone poem tells a story and usually has some kind of story to go along with it. So it's an orchestral piece. Nobody's singing, right? But there's instruments taking roles and, and doing things like Peter and the Wolf without the talking, okay? Okay. Or the narration. So he wrote a lot of those and was very successful with those too. And so those, I think, have just remained in the repertoire, you know, because he, in, let's see, Symphony Number no. 3 premiered in, in 1907. He died in 57, so, and he didn't write for about 30 years. So, you know, somewhere in the 1920s he quits writing, right? Mm-hmm. But by the 1920s, every major city in the country here has an orchestra, they all want to hear the new shit coming from Europe and stuff. Yep. I feel like, you know, he's pretty much remained in the in the repertoire. It's not like somebody like Bach or Rameau who disappeared for a while there. Even though people studied Bach in the classical era, it's not like they were performing his music. They were studying his compositional techniques. And it wasn't until the Romantic era and Mendelssohn that Mendelssohn did this huge Bach revival. Really? Brought back all these huge Bach pieces. And so that's 1800s. You know, so even though people knew about him, they weren't, you know what I mean? But I think Sibelius wasn't that. I think Sibelius has always kind of had a place in in the repertoire. You know what I mean? Yeah. And why do you think that it it is because he is a later figure? Yeah, definitely. Well, and because he was just a really brilliant symphonic writer. Do you think that there's any controversy in, like, Bach, for example, people can prefer Bach or not prefer Bach for personal preference, right? Like, I like this beer, I don't yeah. like this beer. Well, but in the end, I'm going to say this is a really freaking well-made sati mm-hmm. for even, uh, not even the modern palate, right? Like, it's, yeah, we're not hearkening too far back. We're not in the 5th century, but we could easily be in maybe like the 18th century for sure, yep. or maybe the 19th century. You know, is there anybody that, but nobody would argue that Bach wasn't a genius oh, God, and should, yeah, should no. be on like this certain pedestal. Yeah, so no. Sibelius, you know, I've played it for a few friends of mine and some people really react well. Other friends are like, oh, you know, I, I obviously it's really great, but I don't like it. Is there anybody that has ever said that you know of that like, you know, Sibelius is over, like overrated? No, I've never heard that. Okay. Yeah, just, no. Just curious. Well, because... You have to, like, describe what you're speaking of. What do you mean overrated? Do sure. You, do you mean he's an overrated composer? Because you're wrong, if that's the case. Yeah. Like, he wrote really, like, you can't, deny, like you were saying, if if a wine is beautifully made, you don't have to like it, but that doesn't mean it's not beautifully made. Correct. You know what I mean? So you can't really say he's an overrated composer because he was a genius. And what about, well, and the reason why I, I sort of poor Grieg, because I feel like he's sort of, like hanging out in the rearview mirror because we, well, we're yeah we moved on to Finland and stuff. It's true yeah. that Sibelius for me is like very moody. Like I, there are times where I, like I don't. He's want also quite a bit younger. Okay, so okay, so Grieg dies the year the symphony comes out. So Grieg's writing by the time Sibelius is born. Right, Grieg's already been writing. And that's, you know, Grieg had a few decades on Sibelius. And so he's from a different era. And so, well, while you listen, if you listen to Grieg's piano concerto, that gets pretty over the top at times, too. And he's incredibly, like, 
romantic. You know what I mean? Yeah. But Grieg, you know, Sibelius is writing in the 20th century, like literally, like not that long ago. Yeah. You know? Okay, well, that makes that makes all the sense in the world. Yeah. So the last movement, didn't he say, quote, unquote, that his third movement of the third symphony was the crystallization of chaos? Where did he say that? Where do you find this shit? (laughs) I don't know. She comes, (laughs) look, she comes to this, you come more prepared than me. And like, I don't get where you find, where did you find that? You went to the library, damn it. (laughs) I didn't. I just, there's like, if you, there's so many forums and like. Well, of course. Stuff online about Sibelius and it's anything from like stuff you don't want to trust to stuff you really want to trust. And then when you see it six times, you're like, well, that's probably true. Yeah. Which doesn't mean this is true. I just wondered if you heard it. Because when I listened to it, I'm like. The crystallization of chaos? Yeah. I mean, if I'm, you know, thinking, just thinking about the movement itself, I don't know. That seems pretty harsh, you know. I mean, crystallization of chaos, it's not really chaotic in the beginning. It's busy, but it's super structured. But imagine in his head. So, like, we have this final product. Well, how much sati had he had before he wrote it? <laughs> very true as well, or before he said that, right? Yeah, exactly. But like, um, very good point. But yeah. I mean, think of being in that guy's head. There are probably so many iterations of this. See, that's that's from the opening. Like, see. Mm-hmm. Hear all these quotes from yep. earlier movements, a la Beethoven. Thank you very much. I love how they're passing it back and forth. Like mm-hmm. they're, yeah, I love that. That's cool. You wonder if when he wrote that. You know, like, if you look at, if you're a visual person, which I don't know if he was. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think um, if I've read anything about that. But he, you wonder if he, instead of sound, played more with with that, right? Like, with just how it looked on paper to pass around. Sure. It would be a fascinating concept. Sure. This meter, too, the 6-8 business that we're in right now, that's also kind of often associated with pastoral music. Also, this Minnesota Orchestra just cranks out such great recordings and the way they're produced, too. It's just such a good-sounding recording. You know, I love that. Mm-hmm. 
So what I love about this, I can see how someone would say, you know, the crystallization of chaos or whatever. I don't really think this is that much more chaotic than what happens in the development of the first <laughs> movement. That's just my personal opinion. But I, th- I think, um, you know, this is, again, I was talking about this a little bit in the first movement. One of my favorite things about this movement is how all of this scherzo business, you know, kind of frenetic uh, activity goes on for you know, the first, basically the first half of this movement and then kind of this big giant chorale emerges and slowly more and more players of the orchestra join the chorale. So it's just like almost a, you know, you could almost think of it as like a fight between the frenetic and the calm, right? Where where the calm eventually wins over. You know, and there's lots of examples in music of that. There's, uh, that happens in Beethoven's uh, fourth piano concerto. Yeah, sure. Well, frenetic and calm. Yeah, exactly. Frenetic. But in the end, end, nature wins, right? And so there's like this frenetic... Yeah, all the time. ...always for farmhouses to create in order to survive the winter and use nature's bounty. Mm-hmm. And this mm-hmm. element of corralling nature. Yeah. So fascinating. And yeah. here it is in a bottle. You know, here it is in a bottle. No, this stuff is amazing. And then in the end, calm will win. Corral is starting. See, now more people are playing the corral. There's another Finnish conductor named Esa-Pekka Salonen, um, who's great. And there's a video of Esa-Pekka Salonen doing this. I can't recall which. It might be with L.A. Phil, because he was there for a while. Um, doing this great YouTube video of it. And it's, like, really well produced by this video, uh, video company who, like, knows which instruments to go to for the solos and shit. So that makes it that much more exciting to yeah. watch, you know? So I just wanted to let that, you know let you know that if you want to watch it, there's a great resource of uh, another Finnish conductor doing it. There's so much wonderful Sibelius to explore and learn, and I'm just glad that we started with the Third Symphony because it's a good one. It's not his most popular, I will say that. People tend to like two or five or something, so it's fun to share three with you. Well, and I'm glad that you did, and here's to Sati, of which, you know, I wish there were a world of Sati to explore, um, but it just so happens we'll need to travel to Finland to taste more. Sounds good. Cheers. Here's to Scandinavia. Scandinavia.
Thank you for listening to episode 17 of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scoresandpours, and we're on Instagram at scoresandpours. If you like the show, do consider making a financial contribution to patreon.com slash scoresandpours. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott, our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media, Inc.